1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, talk about it, try to figure it out, and see where things go. <laughs> uh, really, you know, we don't know what's going on here.
0: I have no clue.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's so. been one
0: of those weeks, but, you know, it, it's. I, I think we've both been exhausted. We've had long weeks. Uh, I've been planting flowers in my yard, so I feel like I've been beat. And because mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I live in Cherokee County where there's like a layer of rock. And then there's another layer of rock on top of a layer of rock. So yeah, yeah. Uh, so I don't just spend all my time reading books. Sometimes I have to do some manual labor.
1: Yeah, and and we're getting to the toward the end of the year uh, up at the school, and anyone who works at a school knows what the end of the year looks like. Yeah. Um, so
0: things I don't miss yeah, about teaching. Um,
1: yeah and i'm not even a teacher i just i'm doing the maintenance side of things Uh, so it gets a little crazy i mean i I still love working there it's it's a good place but yeah it's just this time of year everyone knows that's just part of the game it's just what happens so um but yeah that that's not why everyone's here um we're here to talk about what are we here to talk about the bible yeah
0: second samuel 19 we're picking up in uh verse 24 and we have, um, you know, Absalom's been killed. David's been told he needs to straighten up and quit pouting. And he has uh, started his journey back to Jerusalem. And he's been doing kind of this backwards journey that mirrors his flight, because in the flight he met uh, three people. And on his return, he's meeting three people who are connected. And there's some, some parallelisms going on here. And last week, we talked about Shimei, the um, mm-hmm. Benjaminite who cursed David, who threw rocks at him, and David had forgiven him. And we cut it off right before he encountered Mephibosheth. Now, this parallels where David runs into Ziva on his flight. And so we're going to get into why that's important. And we're also going to see something that the writer did that was kind of interesting, because this is a really good... A passage to show how the writer has arranged events to make a point. And mm-hmm. so you can definitely see some editing going on that this is not a faithful, blow by blow, historical, linear, or chronological account. This has been put together to teach a theological lesson. And so um, I, I find that interesting because so often when people read their Bibles, they want to say, oh, well, this is how it has it. So it has to be exactly this way. But if you pay attention to those little clues, you can see that sometimes the events have been, I hate to use the word manipulated because that kind of has a a negative connotation, but it-
1: it Maybe go arranged?
0: Arranged, yeah. (laughs) Well, and you know what?
1: Curated.
0: Well, and let's be honest, when the chiropractor manipulates my back, that's a good thing. So manipulation isn't always bad. It's just what are your motives? So- Anyway, that's my two cents on that. So we'll pick up in verse 24, and then we'll get into talking about what's so crazy with all this. So uh, it says, and Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. Now, if we think back to before all of this, I mean, even before Bathsheba and Uriah and all of that, we're going to find two stories. And one is David um, seeking out one of Jonathan's sons to show kindness to, to show Chesed to. And then the story Mm -hmm. of Hanun, the king of the Amorites, who um, David had showed uh, compassion to, and he wanted to send comforters to because Hanun's father had died. And if you remember, uh, Hanun's father's name was Nakash. And so... Mm -hmm. We talked about when we looked at those stories how this was David's misplaced compassion. And there was a problem with what was going on because, first of all, why do you comfort Hanun, the king of the Amorites, son of Nakash? And if you remember your Hebrew, Nakash is the same word as the word for the serpent in the garden. So the, the writer's telling us mm. something about his characteristics. And then, um, Mephibosheth whenever he finds him he invites Mephibosheth to come eat at his table which on the surface sounds like a really great idea but the question that we have to ask is this really kindness or is this some kind of dressed up house arrest where David can keep tabs on Mephibosheth and make sure that this threat who I mean we've got to be honest Mephibosheth as a grandson of Saul as the king that some still believed was the rightful king of Israel, not David. We saw that with Shimei. Mephibosheth is a threat to David's reign. And so by keeping him in his home where he can keep tabs, we can, we can kind of see where David might be being a little smart with how he dispenses his compassion. And the, the story with Hanun really was the kickoff for um, the Bathsheba and Uriah events, because that's what um, determined that they were going to go in battle against Hanun. This is why Joab was out fighting for the city of Rabba. That's where Hanun ruled. And so mm-hmm. Hanun's king of Rabba. Joab's out fighting. David's at home walking the rooftops when he sees Bathsheba. And so that sets everything else into motion. So we've kind of come full circle uh, here and we're. we're seeing the fulfillment of Nathan's prophecy about David from the events of, uh, of Bathsheba and Uriah. And so we, can, we see this second encounter with Mephibosheth, and, and we kind of want to have some anticipation. What's going to happen now? Because if you remember back to when David was fleeing from Jerusalem and he meets Ziba, Ziba had said that Mephibosheth was plotting to take David's throne. So there's a lot of stuff we got to keep in mind as we look at the story to to keep all the background, because a lot of stuff has happened between um, these events. Mm -hmm. So in 2 Samuel 9, and we're just going to real quick recap, 2 Samuel 9, where we meet Mephibosheth and we meet Ziva, this is when Ziva had commended Mephibosheth to David, and he had soothed away... David's fears. You know, he's a cripple. He can't really do anything. He's not really a threat. You have no worries, no reason to worry about him. And then when we get to 2 Samuel 16, Ziba has completely reversed his position and said, you know, hey, he's trying to take your crown. He's waiting in Jerusalem, just, you know, hoping to get an opportunity. And Ziba says, I've abandoned him because um, I'm loyal to you, where he had previously claimed I'm keeping tabs of Mephibosheth because I was loyal to Saul's house, you know, pretty much was what he Mm. had presented it. So up to this point, the writer has really left Ziva as kind of this ambiguous character. Uh, Is he telling the truth? When was he telling the truth? How much of the truth is he withholding? And so we, we don't know what to think. And then all of a sudden we have Mephibosheth who, who shows up. Now you have to remember Ziva is here. Ziva has already joined this, this, entourage that David has following him back to Jerusalem, because Ziva had come along with Shimei. Now, Ziva hadn't spoken, but the writer made sure to tell you Ziva is with him along with a thousand other Benjaminites. And so Mm. everything is playing out in front of Ziva, who has accused Mephibosheth, and now Mephibosheth shows up, and he's in a state of public grieving. He's not washed his feet or trimmed his toenails. He hasn't cared for his beard. He hasn't trimmed it. He hasn't oiled it. And remember, the beards were a source of pride for men in this Mm -hmm. culture. Um, Mm -hmm. He's not washed his clothes. And he hasn't done this since the day David left. Now, I tried to find some kind of timetable for how long this had been. And some sources claim that it was as little as a month. Others say that it was as long as a year. So, right. th- but there, it's evidently been long enough that you can tell he hasn't trimmed his toenails. So,
1: <laughs> right. Well, I mean, and there, you know, knowing that his feet are, are, have been maimed, there's probably also other things he would need to take care of mm-hmm. uh, with that. But it's definitely not the actions of someone who's trying to portray themselves as, as royalty.
0: Exactly. And actually, this is like the most resistance that a crippled man in Jerusalem can offer because he's not, you know, trying to fight Absalom but he's basically by his appearance making this public statement that he's not going to quietly accept Absalom's reign. So he's actually put himself in a position of danger just by doing this by publicly mourning the fact that David is gone. And so mm-hmm. you know this guy's got some some real guts and courage about him. And you know when he shows up and he's been grieving in this public way a way that can't be faked i mean you can't you know just instantaneously make your toenails grow out to to make a good appearance in front of the king he he's making sure that everyone can see exactly the depth of his grief and you kind of have to admire him a bit when you realize what he was risking by doing this now the, the problem is, whenever he does this, he, he's really creating some issues for David, but we're going to get there. Uh, verse 25, when, when Mephibosheth, when he, Mephibosheth, came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king says to him, why did you not go out with me, Mephibosheth? So automatically we have a reversal here, because remember in the beginning of the story, back in 9, when we first met Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth had to be brought to Jerusalem. Now David is being brought to Jerusalem. So we have a, a reversal of roles there. And David's response is, it, it's weird. Because Mephibosheth's crippled. And David's you know, chastising him for, for not going with him. And we already know that the journey was very difficult for those people who were with David that, that had been described in the previous chapters. And when Hushai had shown up, and said, Hey, I want to go with you. What did David said? You're too old. You're going to be a burden to me. Go back home. Don't think that you're going to help me out by staying with me. Just go back to Jerusalem. So then David is asking this crippled guy, why didn't you join me? It's a strange question, unless he thinks there's some validity to Ziva's charges. Or he's offering Mephibosheth an invitation to defend himself, which I think that's how Mephibosheth hears it. Because Mm -hmm. if you notice verses 26 through 28, he answered, and again, Mephibosheth speaking, My lord, my king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go out with the king, for your servant is lame. And he slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But the my Lord, the King is like an angel of God. Do what seems good to you for all of your father's house were men doomed for all of my father's house were men doomed to death before my Lord, the King, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I than to cry to the King? So, you know, Mephibosheth is proclaiming his loyalty to David in the strongest terms. He, he, Hmm. he wants there to be no doubt that You know, the only reason he wasn't there was because he was crippled. He needed that donkey. Ziva had deceived him. He'd taken the donkey instead. He had left Mephibosheth stranded. Uh, And so he owes David everything. And he trusts David with everything. And, you know, it's really funny that the rabbis actually tried to um, justify what Ziva did. And they said, you know, Mephibosheth could have gotten a donkey someplace else. And, you know, maybe, but if he had, you know, gone to the neighbor and said, hey, let me have your donkey so I can join na- David, and the neighbor had stayed behind, now the neighbor is in a precarious situation.
1: Well, there's, there's that, and also, we've worked with animals, donkeys included. <laughs> right. And animals, I mean, and donkeys are really smart. People don't give them a lot of credit. Mm-hmm. They, they kind of are... I don't know why people think of them as like stupid animals, but it's
0: because they, they outsmart they... their owners.
1: <laughs> well, that's probably true, but they they're, they're pretty smart, and especially if you have one like like we don't know. I mean, the, the interpretation says that he's lame in his feet. Mm-hmm. You know, he could have a, a donkey that's more docile, who's mm-hmm. you know he's been with for years. I mean, animals are like yeah. that. There uh, there are certain horses and donkeys and mules they will only let one person ride them. And uh, if if he needed any kind of special accommodations because maybe he couldn't put his feet into stirrups, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's there's plenty of... uh,
0: Trying to think if stirrups had been uh, invented at that point. Well, yeah, I don't know if
1: they would. But, I mean, apparently that is one of the uh, most world-changing inventions Mm -hmm. uh, is actually stirrups. Um, But that being said, yeah, I don't know if they would have been invented, but, you know, I'm just trying to think of like, you know, or anyone you know, like, you know, we use we use seeing-eye dogs mm-hmm. or we, you know, for people who have who are blind, you know, people who have special accommodations, we train animals to help right. them in certain ways. So it's possible that this donkey would, you know, be specific to what Mephibosheth needed. Okay so that's that's what i'm thinking of there when you when you bring that out well
0: that's very much a possibility and i like you said since we have worked with animals that's something we've seen matter of fact it was funny for a while we we had a two horses and i could work with one and my daughter who's really great with horses could work with the other but we couldn't switch and you know and we could but it was a lot more work but Anyway, and when you when you are somebody who's not steady on your feet, working with an unfamiliar animal brings its own level of risk and endangerment. So,
1: but- yeah, and and donkeys, you know, they're not typically as large as horses, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but they're still large enough animals, and they are smart enough animals. They can cause you some damage. Oh, yeah, uh, I I mean, I know it's 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 common in Oklahoma for people to keep donkeys out with their cows because. Donkeys they don't look it, but they're feisty, and they will fight off coyotes exactly exactly so that's something to they they're they're a little more wily than people
0: right, and you, you know and these are things <laughs> I credit them for well, and these are things you've got to take into consideration with the stories because if you haven't grown up in that environment and you haven't worked in these kinds of situations, then you may not be familiar, you might just think, oh well, it's just a matter of going out and getting on a some kind of animal to ride well that there's a lot more to it, and so. Mm-hmm. But the, the problem with what Mephibosheth says is now David's in a really bad situation because Ziva had joined David in the flight from Absalom. He had joined David in fighting against Absalom. And it wasn't just Ziva. It was Ziva, his 15 sons. It was his 20 servants. Whenever they were hungry mm-hmm. on the journey, Ziva had brought donkeys and bread and uh, raisins and different fruits and wine and you know David's survival really was helped at least by Ziva in very mm-hmm. practical, tangible ways. While Mephibosheth is at home not cutting his toenails, so you know that when you see the disparity there of what's happening now, David has a hard decision to make because. You know, the only thing Mephibosheth can do is say, Hey, I'm loyal to you. I trust you. I'm at your mercy. And he Mm -hmm. could offer this symbolic resistance, but he couldn't offer any kind of real resistance. And so, you know, what's David going to do? Because he we already saw that his hold over the army is precarious. We saw that with Joab, whenever Joab said, Hey, if you don't get it together, I'm taking the army and we're done. And 35 Mm -hmm. fighting men, actually 36, when you include Ziva himself, 36 fighting men was a considerable portion of that army. And so David has to figure out what is he going to do? Is he the politician? Is he the king who's going to play politics and play favorites and and bring back the person who can offer him the most tangible and practical good? Or is he going Mm -hmm. to be someone who's compassionate? On a crippled man who has nothing to offer, Uh, so verse twenty nine. And the king said to him, "Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziva shall divide the land." Now, basically, what David's saying is here: Why are you still talking? Just, just shut up.
1: Yeah, I've spoken. We're done.
0: Yeah, I I don't want to hear any more about it. Whatever, we're moving on. And you know, he couldn't really punish Ziva because that would upset the power balance, but. He he doesn't take a stand, and he doesn't offer justice to uh, Mephibosheth, and he doesn't enact justice on Ziva, and he he dodges the issue by dividing the land instead of saying one of you messed messed up and one of you did right. Lying to the king was a punishable offense, and punishable by death. And so, even though Ziva quote lied for the right reason, he had maligned someone that David had promised to take care of. Mm-hmm. And, you know, once again, if we have any compassion and, and we aren't just looking at practicalities, we should be disappointed with, with our hero because he's showing us that his compassion is still misplaced. Just like where we started with the story with Mephibosheth and Hanun, he he still doesn't get it right. He's decided to be the politician and not the friend. And so he he, basically just eschews justice in favor of what's expedient and comfortable, just like he did before with Mephibosheth, just with Hanun, with Bathsheba, with Uriah, Amnon, um, Absalom. I, and so that circle has been traveled, and we don't see a great change, because every time David starts to think of himself as the king, he does stupid stuff. I, I mm-hmm. mean, he he just he isn't the David we love. And so this this pronouncement is so problematic that the Gemara, which is basically a commentary on the Bible, and it has a lot of the uh, extraneous stories, sees this as the point in time where the kingdom is going to be divided. This is what sets it off. And so it says, the Gemara says that as soon as David says these words, that the, divine voice, the Bot-Kol, the daughter voice of heaven, came out of the heavens and said, Rehoboam and Jeroboam will divide the kingship. So they, they specifically credit the divided kingdom, which was going to end up with Israel falling into idolatry. It's going to end up with Israel being in exile. It's going to cause all of these problems. It happens because, in their minds, David divided the land between Mephibosheth and Ziba. And I thought that was very interesting. And so Rabbi Yehuda claimed that David, had David not divided the fields, Israel never would have been divided. And they wouldn't have worshipped idols. They wouldn't have gone into exile. And all of the the major horrible events that Israel's is going to experience actually could have been prevented if David would have had integrity and compassion in the right way in this moment. Now, um, Rashi actually believes that David understood this, and I thought this was interesting. He claims that in Psalms uh, 116.11, when Dave, the psalmist, uh, this psalm isn't specifically credited to David, but if you believe he wrote it, the psalmist says, all men are liars. And so Rashi says that this is David lamenting the fact that Ziva lied to him and kind of forced his hand to make that decision. And The writer wants you to see how problematic this is. This is what I was talking about, where we see that editing and the arrangement, the curation of the passages, as you said, because he has deliberately juxtaposed David's treatment of Mephibosheth against how David had previously dealt with Shimei. Because Shimei had cursed David, he had thrown rocks at David. And, you know, done things that he should have under the law been executed for. And David has said, no, I forgive him. We're good. It's all good. And then with Mephibosheth, who stayed at home, risked his life under Absalom's reign in Jerusalem. David takes half of his possessions away. And so this is why the stories are put together. And I'm going to show you how we know that the stories were rearranged in a few verses. But verse 30, and Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, let him take it all since my lord, the king has come safely home. So Mephibosheth is completely his father's son. Remember, Jonathan uh, was Mephibosheth's dad. And what had, Mephibosheth, what had Jonathan done with David? He'd given him the coat. He said, take my armor, take, you know, take my weapons, take my place as king, pretty much is what he said. And He's like, I don't want it. And so we see that Mephibosheth really has no aspirations for himself. He, he is unwaveringly loyal to David. And, you know, on the surface, if you just read this story and you pull this little section out, it seems that, you know, this isn't an unreasonable thing. I mean, Ziba had, you know, helped David. And there, there is some wisdom to it. And some people have even claimed that, you know, this is kind of a precursor to Solomon's decision of dividing the baby. And you, know, you can kind of see that a little bit. But, you know, what I saw as I read through it is how well the writer sets us up. Because the writer wants us to identify with with Mephibosheth, because if you can see, you know, reason and rationalization and some kind of justification for David's decision, then you're thinking like David. You're thinking like David, the politician. And we've lost the plot because that's not the mission of the Messiah. The Messiah is not supposed to reward those who have something to offer him in return. And we know who the Messiah is is supposed to be. He's supposed to break the bows of the mighty. He's supposed to bind strength onto the feeble. He's supposed to feed the hungry, raise up the poor, lift the needy from the ash heap so that he could set with princes. And why? Because God exalts the horn of his anointed, of his Messiah. And that was, you know, some of what Hannah had prophesied that the Messiah should be. We know what the Messiah looks like because this is the expectation that Hannah had set for us way back there in First Samuel. And this is the reason why when we look at David, even if the decisions he makes are politically correct or politically expedient, if they do not measure up to the, the standard of what the Messiah should be given by Hannah, he's not being who he's supposed to be. Because the hope of Israel was in the Messiah. This is what turns everything around from that period of judges where everything was so terrible is the coming Messiah. And so David, when he fails to embody that person, we, we realize that our expectation has to be set in the future, that it can't be waiting. You know, we can't be looking at a human person to, to fulfill this role. And, you know, the book of Samuel is not meant to comfort us. And it's not supposed to give us this perfect human king who could embody the hopes and the purposes of God. It's to show us that even the most admirable and, and, you know, the the best king that Israel ever had still fell short of what God intended. So we've got to reject the temptation to read these stories with an agenda where David is this great hero who can do no wrong. We have to look at him and go, he is flawed. He is making mistakes. He is failing on so many counts. But there's one who's better. So if he he can, mm. if he can get this close, as flawed as he is, and he can be celebrated as flawed as he is, then how much more can we celebrate the true Messiah, the ultimate Messiah? And you know, if, if we want to identify with anybody in this story, it's not the king. We, we need to take ourselves out of that position because, you know, there's that tendency when you read a Bible story, when you look at the hero, even the flawed heroes, you want to be that person. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to see ourselves as Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is the ideal that we should be trying to aspire to. The one who says, hey, even if you take it all, even if, you know, I get nothing out of this, you're my Lord, you're my King, and I'm not going to betray you. Because all that matters is you are the Lord and King and I'm nobody. What, right. I mean, remember back at the beginning, when we met Mephibosheth, he even says, what, you know, why are you even bothering with me, a dead dog? Mm -hmm. So this is, this is the cool thing about the story is the writer wants you to see that there's, there should be more and that he's also showing us. That what Jesus is going to teach us about the first being last and about, you know, the, the, uh, the reversals that go on there. Why? Because that's what Hannah has taught us back in her song. The Messiah mm-hmm. is all about reversals and all about subverting societal and cultural expectations and elevating those that people have discounted. So, verse 31. Now, Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Regalim, and he went on with the king to Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Now, this is the verse that shows you that juxtaposition of Mephibosheth and Shimei being deliberate, because Mephibosheth met David as he was going into Jerusalem. Barzillai is meeting David before he crosses over the Jordan. He's still some distance away. So the writer chose to delay telling us about Barzillai so he could tell us about Mephibosheth first. This is the reason why we know we're supposed to make those comparisons. So Barzillai uh, escorts David back to Jerusalem. And uh, back in chapter 17, this is when we first met Barsalai. He was also somebody who showed up with um, food and comfort items for David's uh, troops and the families that traveled with him. He's a great guy. He, he, we really we like him because he seems to be giving with no expectation. And he seems to be very um, he seems to be very humble. and we're going to read more about this. Uh, uh, find out more as we read through. So verse 32, Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He provided the king with food while he stayed at Manaim. Sorry, that's one of those words that always throws me. For he was a wealthy uh, man. So we need these details to explain what Barzillai and David are going to do next. Again, so 80 years old, that's pretty old in that day and age.
1: In that day, yeah, that was, yeah, yeah, almost no one made it that far.
0: Exactly. And he provided for David lavishly when David was on the run. Um, you know, he's a wealthy man. The Hebrew actually says he is a, um, a great man. And the, the translators have decided to translate this in a way that reflects his financial situation, which might be a little bit of a, um, cultural thing, but on the translator's part, uh, You know, it's very true. Wealthy men are often great men in their society and culture because they have the resources and funds to do great things. So, Mm. uh, but it could also refer to his moral integrity and his character, not just his financial status. And so the fact that the two are not separated might actually have something to do with them coexisting within one person. Just a thought. So when you don't have those distinctions, sometimes it's supposed to encompass more. So,
1: mm-hmm.
0: verse 33, and the king says to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. So, we talked about when we first met Barzillai that it's possible that he was a, uh, a um, he made arms, he made weapons, that he.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he was an armorer? Thank
0: you. Yes. And so, from that sense, it makes, it, it really does make sense that David. Keeps him close because he is, um, you know, he could provide David with weapons and armor for his um, for his army. But it also meant that Barzillai would be less likely to um, sell arms and weapons to David's competition. And we have to remember being David's house guest because this is the other distinction, you know, contrast and comparison we're supposed to make is Barzillai and Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was David's house guest, and we talked about. just just recently that the uh, keeping Mephibosheth in his house was one way to keep Mephibosheth close. So David could be doing the same thing with Barzillai. Now, but notice what Barzillai does. Verse 34. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should go with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be, want- be an added burden to my lord, the king? So there's, there's two ways to read this. One is face value. This is what this guy actually means. Hey, I'm old. I'm not going to enjoy anything at the palace. You're going to be wasting all this good times and good stuff on a man who can't appreciate it. So, you know, I'm just, I'm going to bow out and I'm going to let you, mm. you know, or the second way to read it is this guy is a pretty savvy politician because he knows that aligning himself too closely and too publicly, too permanently with David might cause some issues with some of his other clients. And, you know, in politely declining Dave, to be David's political pawn, uh, he, he realized, he's saying that he realizes the only one who benefits from this really is David. Uh, you know, Barzillai is wealthy and powerful in his own right. He doesn't need David supporting him, and the writer has deliberately framed Barzillai kind of as a second David figure in the story because he uses he puts David's words in Barzillai's mouth. Because remember, back when David had encountered Hushai, that's a uh, chapter fifteen thirty two. David had said, "Told Hushai, if you go with me, you will be a burden to me." So now Barzillai flips around David's argument and says, "You know, I don't want to be a hushai. I don't want to be a a burden to you." And so, to me, I don't think Barzillai is this helpless old man who's you know teetering on the edge of the grave. Uh, He he reads like a great man. He reads like the politician who managed to to gain his status because he was smart and he knew how to play the games of his day, and he. The thing is, he, he doesn't just stop here. He, he actually continues in verse 36. He says, your servant will go a little way over, for, over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I might die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, PM. Let him go with my lord, the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. So first, Barzillai downplays his importance. And he suggests, you know, basically, I'm dying soon and, you know, don't waste it on me. But then he offers this alternative, Kiam. Uh, now, the writer Samuel tells us absolutely nothing about this guy. Uh, we just get a name. And we aren't giving any hint as to why Barzillai would suggest that David take Kiam uh, whenever he declines David's invitation. The few clues we do have are, come from other verses in the Bible. And so, First of all, in 1 Kings 2.7, David instructs Solomon that he's supposed to let the sons of Barzillai, uh, the Gileadite, to eat at the king's table. And so we don't have a direct name there, but we have this reference to someone connected, a son connected to, to Barzillai eating at the king's table. And that is exactly what Barzillai had suggested, that Keom take his place eating at the king's table. So we think that he possibly was Barzillai's son. As, okay. Ezra 2.61, there's a priest who takes a wife from the sons of Barzillai and was called by their name. So Barzillai was so well-respected that the man who, who married one of his daughters or granddaughters actually, actually take Barzillai's name as a family name. So that's another hint not only to what happens with these guys in the, or Barzillai's sons in the future, it's also a hint as to the greatness of Barzillai in his day that if you marry one of his daughters, you take the father-in-law's name. That's pretty. Um, that's telling that he's pretty important. That it's, sure. that's not a, something that's done lightly.
1: Yeah, you don't you don't change your your name without some kind of commitment. Typically, well,
0: even today. I mean, how many men do you know who take their wife's name? I mean it, it just we still don't do that as standard practice. And typically when it does happen, there's there's a reason there that goes beyond just, oh, her name sounds better. So yeah. Right. <laughs> right. But Jeremiah forty-one seventeen identifies a location as it says uh, Gareth uh Chayam near Bethlehem. Uh that's that's the name. But if the Hebrew there for Gareth uh is the hospitality of, or the hospitality accorded to, Kiam. So we think that it's a piece of land that David set aside for Kiam to, to have, or, you know, to work and get, get um, some kind of return to support himself while he was staying with David. And so this is, this is a really smart move on Barzilai's part. Because you know, there's a tradition in ancient cultures and almost every ancient culture where trading children is actually part of sealing covenants and compacts between the the two families. You know, if if somebody's got my kid in their house, it's less likely I'm going to attack the house is pretty much what it amounts to. And so by go ahead.
1: I was gonna say I'm pretty glad that's not a practice anymore. I, I I like my kids. I don't know. I don't know about like having someone else's kid in my house. Wait till they're teenagers. Kind of
0: weird. (laughs) Stop that. Just stop. Okay. 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 Yeah. But you know, this this is one of the ways that you formalize a covenant alliance between two families. And like I said, it's so effective that so a lot of cultures did practice it. And so Barzillai is formalizing an alliance with David, but not too much. You know, it's not. Sending his son to live with David is not the same as Barzillai going to live with David. And so it's just enough to demonstrate, hey, there's not going to be hostilities, but not so much that Barzillai is becoming dependent on David. He's not placing himself at David's mercy. Mm. So verse 38, and the king answered, Kiam shall go over with me and I will do for him what seems good to you and all that you desire me, I will do for you. So David accepts Barzillai's offer, and he he makes Barzillai a really extraordinary promise because notice what he's he's promising to do: he will do for Kiam whatever Barzillai thinks is good for Kiam, not what David thinks is good. And he he right. says that he will do whatever Barzillai desires. So. This is not just, hey, I'm going to control your son or control your family, or Barzillai even giving up his son and relinquishing all right. David is saying, you're still going to have input here. You're going to have an impact on my decisions. That's crazy. There's not many people that a king makes himself beholden to, and you know. And the other thing too is, Barzillai has set it up so that it's easy for David to make this promise. I mean, after all. What does it hurt to make this outrageous promise to a dying man? I mean, you only have to honor it for a few months if you take Barzillai's words at face value. <laughs> right. right. So I, I think Barzillai is a little smarter than we, we give him credit for at, you know, when we first read this. At first, it, it seems like he, he's just you know, being all humble, but his words sound like David's. He's got that same mm-hmm. attitude, and you can see that politician's bent, that politician's kind of approach to things within this culture. And so I, I, I think it's really interesting that you see the two together. Verse 39 Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him and returned to his own home. Now, Alter wrote this about this verse, and it, there just wasn't much improving on it, so I'm just going to read it. It This entire catastrophic sequence in the David story began with David's cold kiss to his son from whom he had been estranged, followed by Absalom's calculated kiss for every man he enlisted to his cause at the gate of the city. Now the king bestows a kiss of true affection upon a loyal old man who provided for him and his troops in the moment of need. But I, I don't think Alter took it far enough because if you go back and you start looking at the various pieces of the stories together, you start to see something even larger. I mean, Absalom, we've got to remember when his story began, he enacted justice on the king's son. Whenever uh, Amnon had attacked Tamar. And it was after he had killed Amnon that he had fled from Jerusalem. Now, Barzillai and his son had helped enact justice on another one of the king's son, Absalom himself, and they escort the king into Jerusalem. So you have the enacting of justice on a king's son and that reversal, fleeing from Jerusalem and returning to Jerusalem. Chiam uh, is given an unconditional place at the king's table where Ab- Absalom was not even allowed to be in the king's presence. He was had to set Joab's fields on fire in order to get an audience with his own dad. And then when Absalom does see David, he gets that cold, politically correct, formal um kiss from the king. He doesn't get the kiss of affection from the father who's welcoming back. And it was at that point that the story turned and Absalom went from wanting to be a part of David's courts to starting to plot against David and starting to be rebellious within the kingdom. And barzillais mm-hmm. he's kissed with, with acceptance and with true affection and support for what he's doing. And so we have this really interesting, um, this really interesting reversal here where so much of what David did in the past Leading up to his exile is getting replayed in a slightly different manner, so that we can see that David had a chance to grow, he had a chance to change, and you know the things that God confronts him with directly through like through Nathan the prophet, where he says, you know, hey, you're the man, and he explains that you know all of this division is going to come in your from your house within your house, and it's going to be upon your house then now David would repent of that. But when it comes to the day-to-day decisions, when it comes to, to being the, the politician, David can't figure out how to just be who he's supposed to be in that day-to-day setting. He, he lets the role define him instead of him defining the role. And mm-hmm. that's, that's the sad part, because this is, these are the decisions that ultimately lead to, to so many of the travesties that happen, that follow within um, David's rule, and even uh, proceed into uh, Solomon's rule, and then, of course, with Rehoboam and Jeroboam, which results in a divided kingdom. And that's why the rabbis can look back and say, this is where it happened. This is where David fell down, and this is the consequence of that action. So, um, verse 41, and then all the men of Israel came out to the king and said to the king, why have our brothers, uh, brothers of the men of Judah stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all of David's men's with him. So when it's saying here that all the men of Israel, this is, this is everyone except for the tribe of Judah. And we already talked about how there's a schism starting to form between there. And, um, he, David had singled them out previously in this, in this chapter. Remember, he had sent the, the priest to go advocate on his behalf with Judah and said, you know, why is Israel proclaiming me king and you guys are, are wasting time, essentially? Mm. And now Israel, the, everyone else is getting mad. What, what do you mean? Why, why are you saying that, that you, you, he's your king? He's all of our king. So actually, uh, they say, verse 42, and all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? So basically, Judah is saying, hey, look, we didn't gain anything from this. He's family. We're related by blood. This is the reason why we have a claim to him, and you don't. So you need to back off, is pretty much what they're telling everyone. And the men of Israel Answered the men of Judah. Have we? We have ten shares in the king. Basically, you're one tribe. There's ten of us. And notice there too, it's Judah and ten tribes. Where's Benjamin at in this debate? Right. They are not being mentioned, but we already know that they've joined with Judah because Shimei had arrived with Ziva and a thousand men from Benjamin. So Benjamin, at this point, has they're starting to be considered very closely aligned with Judah, and that schism is, it is slowly broadening, and it will continue to broaden until we get to the dividing kingdom. And the, Judah points out that, you know, we weren't bought off. We, we didn't eat at the king's table. He didn't give us a gift. We have not been bribed. This is, this is just right. a family member. So um, anyway, we have 10 shares in the king, and David, also, we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first in bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of Israel. So, now this is kind of interesting because um, basically the, the tribe said, Hey, we spoke up. Israel says, We spoke up first. Judah, you were being quiet. You, you relinquished your right to have this celebration, this honor. Because you didn't speak up soon enough, David actually had to single you out and, and make you step up. But now, um, there, the 10 tribes also presents another connection that was easy to lose, and I thought this was very interesting. The ten tribes were actually, uh, according to the rabbis, were supposed to represent the 10 concubines of David. And so the fact that there's 10 tribes who who now are saying he's our king we're going to get into that when we get into Shem- to the rebellion of Shiva uh, sorry Shiva because we have some more connections we can't forget that these women were a part of everything that has gone up to this you know built up to this point and you mm-hmm. know basically the the writer seems to have forgotten about them and the rabbis are trying to take us back and make that connection. Because so much of the story, when you just read through it, if you aren't keeping track of where the women are and making that very conscious effort to see how the women are being treated, what, you know, how they're responding, you forget that many times within the story of David, they are the catalyst Mm -hmm. and that's good and bad. Because, I mean, you go back to, to Michael, who saves David's life. You can go to Abigail, again, who saves David's life. Hannah, the one who prophesied of him, you know, the coming Messiah, The, the back in 1 Samuel. But then you also have these 10 concubines and Bathsheba. And so they and Tamar, his own daughter, the wise woman of Tekoa. Every major event has, has had something to do with women. And the rabbis pick up on this. And when they pick up on this, what they're doing is they, they find ways to, to reinsert the women into the story, even when they aren't directly to mentioned. But so we got 10 tribes. We have this, this slight reference to remind us of the, the 10 concubines. And we see that basically Judah is, is louder. They, they, they are more fierce. So their words are more fierce. Mm-hmm. This is the only reason why they win the argument. So we're already seeing that there's some level of intimidation where Judah is more powerful or could be seen more powerful than the ten tribes were together, which
1: mm-hmm.
0: we've, already, we've already seen that to some extent because we, when we go back to Judges and remember back with um, the Levite and the concubine. The, the armies were divided with the 10 tribes, or sorry, with 10 tribes in Judah. And at that point, Judah was fighting against Benjamin. So now that we're going to go into chapter 20, we've got a few minutes here. We'll go ahead and fill them up. It says, now there happened to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of beir the Benjaminite. And he blew a trumpet and said, we have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So. Things are not fine. And I think that's the big takeaway from everything that's going on. David is king of Israel, but it's not this idealized version that we have had in our minds since Sunday school. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it really is. It, they gloss over a lot of stuff in Sunday school and there's, and it's really interesting I mean, going through this. I've, I've I've been more interested in what's going on because we are getting a lot of detail and partly probably also cause I'm an adult <laughs> that probably helps. Um, but it's kind of the way that, that history is taught and a, the way a lot of it goes in Sunday school is it's memorizing names, memorizing dates, memori- you know, it's like, it's just all this, this stuff with no context and there's no humanity in what's happening in the course of the, of the events. And this is, really bringing it back i i feel like you have i feel like you're, you're doing a pretty good job <laughs> of, of tying in those details and and making it more interesting than just in, and this date the kingdom split because of this and this and you know it that's what we got growing up and i know a lot of it is just resources mm-hmm. um you know so i'm not trying to fault anyone who was teaching sunday school but just just that's probably how they were taught it oh, yeah. and and there there's not all these these details or we didn't have uh, people talking about the rabbinic interpretations and traditions and the way things were perceived. So it's, uh, or, or even Second Temple literature, mm-hmm. or or different things like that. So um, yeah, I, I, yeah. Well, there's there's just a lot more to it than than just the names and dates. And then when we're not talking specifically <laughs> about uh, this run in or that run in. Oh everything was just fine and it was the perfect place to live. Well, you know, God was how it was presented. God
0: said David was supposed to be king, so he was king, right? There was no struggle, mm-hmm. there was no dispute, there was no debate because God had said it. And you know, that that's kind of how it was presented. And there's this there was even this idea that, you know, and there still is this idea that you don't question God. And so by right. even thinking that there could be some division within the the context and day of David, there that's implying that maybe just because God says something, it might not be a done deal. And I think sometimes we for Well and it, like, Sorry, like, finish Sometimes that. we forget that when God decrees something, yes, it is settled. It, it's finished. It's not there's no debate that's going to happen, but there's still the process. The, mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. the process is often very messy. Because we as human beings are messy creatures. I mean, if David had not sent servants to comfort Hanun, then there would have been no war with Rabba. And if there hadn't been a war with Rabba, there would have been no chance for him to see Bathsheba. If they hadn't seen Bathsheba, then there would have been no prophecy from Nathan. And if he hadn't... um, Slept with David, then if Amnon had raped Tamar, then David would have had the authority to speak up and do something about what was happening in his own house. And then he wouldn't have had the Absalom's rebellion. So you see how the process, even though, yes, David is king and he is the most celebrated king of all of Israel's history, the process was complicated because David kept misplacing his compassion. He failed mm-hmm. to uphold mm-hmm. the ideal of who and what the Messiah should be. And, and that, that's the thing. I think that's what we've got to come back to, where we've got to realize, where when things don't work out, it's not because, oh, wait a minute, God's not there, God's not at work, and that you know maybe we're failing to have some kind of level of faith for God to go ahead and do what he promised, that no, sometimes the process is just messy.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, and and there is this, you know, I, I think there's a couple things going on there, and one of those is, I think we tend to, when we look back on history, we tend to see every place, every country as a monoculture. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, everything is exactly the same, the Jews were all the same they all said the same thing and thought the same thing and everything was exactly the same except for the times when it was recorded. It wasn't. And then those people were rooted out. So everyone could go back and agreeing and doing the exact same thing,
0: which is hilarious. When, we, when you look at, okay. we've come through judges to get here.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that I don't know exactly. I mean, that's just, it's part of the, 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 the flaws in the way we, we study history, but uh, you know, there, there's that. And then the, um, there's there's also this kind of this idea that goes on in uh, in christian circles that you know we we have this saying that's you know god doesn't call the qualified he qualifies the called and you know i think there is something to some of that but i think we tend to overplay that mm-hmm. and this we 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 overlook the fact that you know during this time David was fighting battles he was uh, learning about you, you know the time he spent in Saul's <laughs> palace he was learning uh, it's this idea that people tend to think you know we, and I think I've said I don't know if I've said this before on the show but we tend to take this idea of our doctrine of salvation which there's nothing we can do to save ourselves and too often we apply it to our Calling and what God calls us to do, and we say God's called me this to this, and when it's time, uh, whoever it is who's in, you know, he's just going to tell the person who's in charge of putting me in that position that I'll just be in that position. And we don't work to build a resume, we don't work to improve skills, and And
0: we wait for or we wait for or or we
1: go 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 ahead or we
0: wait for somebody to knock on our door and say, "Hey, I heard you were funny," you know.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it and or or we're in that position and we're like, oh well this is where God put me, so this is my calling, so I must be doing it right. Right. And then we wind up with a bunch of uh mediocre songwriters um uh, <laughs> pumping stuff out into the Christian uh music market. But anyway, that's or 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 not getting any better at leading congregations as a worship leader or improving your presentation skills as a pastor, um those are things that that we should be doing if we are being paid to do those things professionally, we should be working on those things at a professional level, whether that's and I say professionally, a lot of people think, oh, well, it's not professional well it is professional if it's what well, you're getting paid to do uh you know you should be putting in some time and investment to give back to people uh, what what they're putting into it and yes there there is a you know there there is a point where you know it's not all about professionalism and it's not all about your polish and shine on your presentation but i think we should each be working to do those things to the best of our abilities and working to get better and looking at where we can improve and i i that sorry i'm kind of kind of on my soapbox about this a little <laughs> bit but it is that whole deal i think that we we want to try to go God called the person and just put them in the position and they just, or, you know, God did it all through them, which yes, but he also works providentially with people's skill sets and things of that nature. Well, so I, I, go I ahead. have to
0: throw this out there because when I was speaking with Ruth Whiteford and she, she used this phrase that I love and I told her I was totally going to plagiarize her. Uh, she said, you know, when, when we become Christians and we enter into this covenant relationship, uh, something along those lines. She said, um, you know, we become friends with excellence. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. I really like that. I mean, because if you're friends with excellence, then that changes how you do things. That changes Mm -hmm. how you approach what you're doing. And, And I think as Christians, as representatives of God here on earth, we need to be doing things with excellence because we represent a God of excellence. And so whenever we get lazy and we, we stop taking responsibility to improve our skill set or to do things to the best of our ability, then are we really being excellence friend or are we becoming, in fact, an enemy and presenting God poorly to the world? And so, you know, I, I think that's one of the things that we see with David and you know, to, to bring it back to our story. In those moments where he is wholly dependent on God, when he's running for his life, when he's facing the giants, when he's you know, in the middle of a crisis and he realizes that he needs God's help, this is the David we love and celebrate. This is the David we want to be like. The moment he starts thinking, I'm king and things go my way because I'm king and I deserve this because I'm king, this is when he does all the stupid stuff that causes mm-hmm. problems, not just in his own life, but the lives of his children and the lives of the kingdom. And ultimately, if you want to get really technical and follow the line out as far as we can, even impacts our lives today, because mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. don't see the proper, we don't have a proper view of David. We, we've gotten this, this imbalanced perception of him and, you know, And we want to talk about one of the big arguments about taking the Bible seriously and honoring the Bible is, well, David was a man after God's own heart, and he raped Bathsheba. And a lot of people are done with the Bible right there. So Mm -hmm. David's actions still have consequences. And I think we need to take that as, as a point of learning in our own lives that our actions have consequences beyond ourselves. Why? Because we're eternal, and we serve a God who's eternal. So we need to be paying attention and in trying to to do things well, in order to make sure the consequences of our actions are something that we want to live in, and that we want our children to live in, and our grandchildren. Because David forgot that why, because he had misplaced compassion, and you know, and I'm not going to get too political here, but that's one of the things that as we've studied in our own culture, me looking around going, how many times in the Christian culture is our compassion misplaced and misapplied Mm -hmm. and mm, what are the consequences going to be for that? And that scares me.
1: We're seeing a lot of the fallout Mm -hmm. of that. And uh, so
0: on that sad note,
1: yeah, (laughs) let's, that's a whole nother podcast. That's not even another episode. I think that's a (laughs) do a whole season on that. Um, But that being said, um, everyone, uh, thanks for joining us. Hopefully, uh, we'll end on a happier note next time. (laughs) Um, that being said, uh, if you want to be part of the conversation, maybe cheer everyone up, uh, join us over at Raven Creek SC on all the social media. Ravencreeksc.com is the website gets you to our show with show notes. And, um, also, other shows we've got about five right now, and we may or may not have some things on the hopper that we'll mm. announce within the next few months. Yeah. Um, I'm excited about those things, and hopefully you are too. And we'll let you know when we can. Um, so, in the meantime, we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been
0: listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash SC. As always,
1: thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.